God, we pray that you would give grace now, that the Holy Spirit would come and take every thought that is competing with hearing you right now and move it out of the way, with everything that would cause our ears not to hear, with everything that would cause our eyes not to see, with all the stuff in our minds that would keep it from believing it, our hearts from understanding and being transformed by it, would you remove those things so that by your grace you might help us to hear your word? We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me to set before your people the feast that is in this passage and that you would give grace for them to eat it, to receive it, and to be transformed and changed by it. So that by the end of this time, we love Jesus a bit more than we did when we got here. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This Tuesday, as many of you know, is Valentine's Day, and I have to tell you that I always struggle with Valentine's Day. It's kind of hard for me because romance and grand gestures of love and extravagant displays of love and affection, none of that comes natural to me. I'm, I'm just not wired that way. And I want to say that it's really my father's fault, right? It's, it's dad's fault. And, and the reason is it's not, don't get me wrong, dad loves mom. Dad would die for mom in a second, but dad is just not the romantic type, and that's what I watched growing up. So, for example, I remember my mom once playfully talking to my dad, and she was trying to get some, you know, some sweetness out of him, and so she wanted to sort of communicate the point of, oh, you'll, you'll miss me when I'm gone. Then you'll really appreciate and value me. And so she said something to dad like, what are you going to do when I die? And she was hoping that dad would say something like, sweetheart, I can't live without you, or something like that. Dad didn't miss a beat. Dad said, I I'm going to bury you. What else would I do, right? That that's, that's the genes that I inherited. So, so you can imagine that I'm not really killing it when it comes to romance. Uh, but I want you to know it's not limited to romance either. It's sort of across the board. It, it applies to sort of anything when it comes to buying gifts for people uh, or for the kids or, or for others. Uh, for example, Shainu, Shainu, my wife, she loves buying gifts. She loves buying thoughtful gifts. She spares no expense when it comes to gifts. Uh, she does that because she's a nice, normal human being, right? <laughs> If it were up to me, that would not be how it would be. If it were the kid's birthday and if it were left to me, I kid you not, I would go up to my kids and I'd say, son, it's your birthday. Because I love you, I made a contribution to your college savings account, right? Because nothing says I love you like a 529 in my opinion, right? Because that's a sensible, practical thing. That, that's, that's the way that I think. That's the way that I'm wired. I imagine that, that my tombstone will read... Here lies a J. Thomas, a pragmatic, practical, level-headed, frugal, but not cheap, because there's a difference. It'll say that on the tombstone. Frugal, not cheap, there's a difference. Sensible man, okay? Because I'm wired that way, I want you to know that's why this story we're looking at in Mark today goes against every natural fiber of my being. It cuts against everything about how I see the world, how I think of things, how I would express things, because in the passage that you heard Robin read for us, you get an extravagant, expressive, expensive, over-the-top, unbelievable public display of affection and emotion and love aimed at Jesus. And I want you to know, every one of those descriptive words sort of punch me in the gut over and over again. They go against who I am. To, to think of this as being extravagant, that one gets me. Or expressive, or expensive, that one really hurts. Or public display, by that point I'm, I'm ready to look away, this is too awkward for me. Every one of these things is what this is, and yet, 
Here's what strikes me the most. Jesus in the story doesn't seem to share my sort of calculated pragmatism. He doesn't seem to share my practical look at things. In fact, there are some guys like me in the story, and they turn out to be the ones that are not approved of by Jesus, but rebuked by Jesus. The story is Mark 14. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have one, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, If you don't own one, please feel free to keep that. We'd love for that to be a gift from our church to you. Mark chapter 14, it's on page 850. We're going to be in that section, so you want to just leave it open there. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. When you get there, one of the things you'll notice is something that we've been studying through Mark in this church for a season now, for over a year now. And we've seen Mark present stories the way that he presents this one before. Uh, For example, just the literal structure of it, Mark is giving a sort of this story sandwiched in between something that comes before and something that comes after. We've seen Mark do that. We've seen these Mark sandwiches. What Mark does is he'll talk about something, then he'll talk about something else, and then he'll come back to what he talked about, right? He, He sort of says, here's A and here's B, now let's talk about A again. And whenever we see that structure, we know, oh, we've got a Mark sandwich. And the the point of the Mark sandwich is is to really look at the meat in the middle. The meat in the middle is what's supposed to help you see what comes before and what comes after. Well, here in these first 11 verses, you've got a Mark sandwich. Because verse 1 and 2, you'll notice, is about the religious leaders, the chief priests. And they are, it says, looking for a way to get Jesus. That makes sense as we've been working our way through Mark. The tension against Jesus is rising. In fact, I was reminded that as early as chapter 3 of Mark, the religious leaders were looking to kill Jesus. It's amazing that we've covered this much ground. And now in Mark 14, they've finally gotten their time. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. The chief priests are looking for a way in stealth, it says, to arrest him and kill him. And the only thing that's keeping them from getting the job done is that it's Passover. Meaning Passover was a time where lots of guests came into town. Lots of people, thousands of people were in Jerusalem. And Passover was a time specifically when you celebrated how God had saved Israel from the foreign oppressors. So it was a time when everyone was nationalistic and hopeful and thinking about a Messiah that would deliver them. It was the time when it was ripe for a riot. And so the Jewish priests, the chief priests, the religious leaders, didn't want to upset the crowd where Jesus was popular. And so they were looking for a way in stealth to arrest and kill Jesus. That's one and two. When you get to the bottom half, the second layer of the sandwich, where it ends in verse 10 and 11, you find that Judas, one of Jesus' own, one of Jesus' 12, one of his trusted friends in the inner circle, this disciple of Jesus is seeking an opportunity to betray him. In fact, it says that he approaches the religious leaders. He says to them, I'll hand Jesus over to you. They say to him, we'll hand some money to you. They are as happy as can be. And now you've got these two layers. The religious leaders are seeking to get Jesus, and Judas is seeking to hand over Jesus. And it's this perfect counterpart. And you've got these two layers, these two dark layers, these two sinister, evil, treachery, hatred, hostility, brewing on both sides. And sandwiched in the middle is this story of extravagant, 
over-the-top, expressive, expensive, unbelievable public love for Jesus. It's sandwiched in between. In fact, I want to almost say it's the darkness of what comes before and after that sort of makes the middle pop out, highlights it even brighter. It's sort of like a, a jeweler that might lay a diamond on a black cloth. The black cloth serves to only shine the, the, the brilliance and beauty of the diamond all the more. So it is in this passage that the darkness of 1 and 2 and the darkness of 10 and 11 makes what comes in the middle shine all the brighter. This story of this woman and her extravagant, expensive, over-the-top, unbelievable public display of love for Jesus. Here's the story. It starts in verse 3. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So let me catch you up on what's happening. Jesus is in the town of Bethany. Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem, about a 30-minute walk from the temple. And Jesus, what he would do is he'd go to the temple, and then he'd go back to his friend's home and stay in Bethany. And that's what he did for that whole week. Well, this evening, he gets invited to a, a dinner party, if you will, at the home of a man named Simon. We're not exactly sure who he is, but we're told he's Simon the leper. And, and we do well to almost assume it must be Simon the former leper, because if he was currently a leper, he would have been cast out from the community. He would have had to cry out all the time, unclean. He would have been the last one hosting a, a dinner soiree at his house, if you will. But here he is. Simon is hosting a meal for Jesus. Some have even speculated maybe he was healed by Jesus and is hosting a meal of thanksgiving for Jesus. Whatever the case, here he is hosting a dinner party. And one of the other accounts, the gospel according to John, fills in some of the details that Mark doesn't give us. For example, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. When John tells this same story, he fills out, for example, the guest list for us. He tells us that at that meal was also Lazarus. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Lazarus was Jesus' good friend. Lazarus had died, was in the grave for four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Jesus loved Lazarus, and Jesus loved that family. At the meal was also Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. And so at this meal at Simon's house, I want you to be thinking an evening with good friends. It's the disciples that are there. It's Simon who appreciates Jesus that's there. It's Martha and Mary and Lazarus that's there. In fact, it's almost worth noting who's not there as much as who is there. Who's not there is the people we've been reading about. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Herodians and the Sadducees. All the religious leaders that hate Jesus. All of them that have been picking a fight with him all throughout chapter 12, none of them are there. And so you've got this one evening without conflict and controversy and tension and friction and back and forth. It should be just an evening with good friends, eating good food, drinking good drink, in good company in Jesus last week. Except at the dinner, something happens that suddenly disrupts the party for everyone. A woman comes in. Now, in John's account, we're told this is Mary, Lazarus' sister. Mark leaves that out. It's almost as if Mark wants you to know her name doesn't matter. What she did is what's going to be remembered forever. 
Mark tells us this woman comes in and she's got in her hand an alabaster of ointment, a jar of perfume, if you will. Except Mark wants you to know this is no ordinary perfume. In fact, he gives you a bunch of details about what's in this flask in order to highlight for you this is no ordinary thing. For example, Mark says it was made of pure nard. Commentators, scholars, smart folks who have studied the Bible say that there, right there, means that this thing in this jar was made from herbs that came all the way from the Himalayas, from India. So this thing is an exotic piece that has come over, and this is now in Mary's hands, in this woman's hands. We're also told that this kind of ointment wasn't just the kind you would sort of just spray on as you're about to go out of the house. This had a special use. Uh, One of the uses is before embalming happened, back then the Jewish practice was when someone you loved got buried, you would spread this ointment to cover over the stench of death. So this is a strong fragrance. In fact, when John tells the story as the perfumes poured out, the fragrance fills the whole house. You'd imagine it was lingering on their clothes for several days, and they would remember every time they smelled what happened at Simon's house. Mark also wants you to know, not only is it this exotic thing, it's an expensive thing. Do you notice in verse 3, he says it was very costly. And then you hear again in verse 5, we're told that this jar, this perfume, this ointment would have cost well over 300 denarii. That's the equivalent of a year's worth of wages. So don't miss this. This detail is telling us for an average Philadelphian, this bottle that she had was worth somewhere around thirty-five to $40,000. In today's terms, that's what she took and brought to this party. So it's not the kind of thing you'd pick up at Walmart or a kiosk at the mall. This thing, this thing was probably like a family heirloom that was passed down. In fact, where you'd probably find it is in a safe in the house. Because what this thing was, was was your security. You kept it for a rainy day. It was the kind of thing that you held on to so that if times ever got tough, at least you had this thing that you could sell and make it for a whole year. That's what this is. And Mark tells us, well, she brought that, broke it, and poured it all out on Jesus' head. And that's just the thing. She broke it, meaning she couldn't put this, couldn't crazy glue this thing back together. Couldn't salvage any of it. The whole thing, $40,000 worth, poured onto the head of Jesus. In a moment, it's all gone. Now, that's the thing that especially gets you. The, The whole thing. Meaning, if she had twisted off the top, poured a few drops, carefully closed it, put it back in a purse, locked it up in the safe again, no commotion would have resulted, and we probably wouldn't have even had this story in the account. But she... Standing there at that dinner party, empties the whole thing, breaks the whole thing on Jesus. In doing that, I want you to know, she reminds us of another woman we've met in Mark. Do you remember the woman we met at the end of chapter 12? Also a nameless woman. And it was an unnamed poor widow. And in one sense, these two women and what they offered Jesus could not be more worlds apart. At the end of chapter 12, the poor nameless widow throws in two coins into the offering box. If you rub them together, you might get a penny. This lady drops $40,000 on Jesus' head. And yet for both of them, Jesus points to them as a picture for everyone of here's what it means to be a follower of mine. In fact, he uses this phrase in both passages. 
He says, truly, I say to you. Whenever Jesus said the words truly, truly, or in the old King James, verily, verily, it was a clue. You better pay attention. Don't miss this. In both stories, Jesus says, when the widow drops the two coins, he says, truly, I say to you, disciples, take note of this. She has given more than everyone else. And it's the same thing here. When this woman is done, Jesus will end this passage by saying, truly, I say to you, what she has done will be proclaimed the world over and never forgotten. This woman, Mark wants you to see, Jesus points her out because she is a picture of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So we would do well to take note of her. Now, she comes into the dinner party and throws down this extravagant, expressive, expensive, over-the-top, unbelievable public display of love and affection for Jesus. And her her gift gets two reactions that are worlds apart. Look at the first one, verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Now pause there for a second. Remember who's at the soiree, who's at the dinner party. There's no scribes here. No Pharisees, no Herodians, no Sadducees, no Jesus haters at this party. In fact, this party is good friends. This is the disciples. This is Lazarus and Martha and Simon. They're the ones who are here. This is a night of people who like Jesus, who love Jesus, who have followed Jesus. And yet in that company, this woman pours out this bottle on Jesus' head and nobody applauded her. Nobody cheered her on. Nobody celebrated her. Nobody imitated her. Nobody said, Mary, you have done such a good thing. I wish I had thought of that as well. Oh, if only I was thoughtful to think of doing for Jesus what you had done for Jesus. Instead, nobody celebrates her. Instead, what she is is scorned and scolded. In fact, Mark literally says they were indignant. The word there is they sort of snorted at her. Their nostrils, you can imagine, were flaring. They grunted and growled at her, and they scolded her, saying, What a waste! What a waste! Now listen, put yourself in the story. And before you assume that you would have stood with Jesus and been one of the good guys, I would imagine most of us would have said exactly what they said. I know I would have. If I was there that night, I would have been in one corner and I would have nudged a friend and I would have said, could you believe that? What is she thinking? I would have said things like, that was totally irresponsible. I would have said things like, that wasn't wise or thought out. She just got carried away in emotion. I would have said things like, she should have sought somebody's counsel, right? And then because I can't just come out and say that I'm frugal, not cheap, or because I can't say this thing for Jesus was a total waste, I would have come up with some kind of excuse. I would have said, just imagine all the good that could have been done with that. And I would have listed out all the charities you could have given to, all the poor people you could have fed, all the naked people you could have clothed, and sick people you could have healed. I would have come up with some clever, good-sounding excuse for why that was a total waste. And that's what they do. Verse 5. This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now listen, they're right. I want you to know they're right about what they're saying. Back in Mark 6, for example, there's this story where Jesus feeds 5,000 men. We're not even told how many women and children, so it could have been 20,000. 
He feeds 5,000 men, and in that story, there's this scene where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, why don't you feed them? And the disciples say back, what are we supposed to do? Go spend 200 denarii to feed all these people? And if you make the equation right, that means 200 denarii would have fed a crowd of 5,000 men, maybe up to 20,000. This bottle is well worth north of 300, a year's wages. So you do the math and you tell me how many people this could have fed, how many people this could have helped, how many homes this could have built or sick people it could have healed. They're right, you know. Couldn't this thing have been sold and all of this given to so much good rather than being dumped out on the head of Jesus? But the truth is, they could not care less about the poor. The poor was just a sentence for them to say what they thought, which is, this is horrible. In fact, in John's account, we read that the person most vocal, most leading the charge was Judas. Does Judas strike you as someone who was caring about the poor? John's account tells us that already Judas was stealing out of the common money bag that Jesus and the disciples were living on. And so that meant that this man was already taking money to line his own pocket, not to feed the poor. It's not that they cared for the poor. The truth is, this extravagant, expensive, expressive, over-the-top, unbelievable public display of love and affection for Jesus, it made no sense to them whatsoever. In fact, more than that, it deeply offended them. It bothered them. It didn't sit well with them. And I want you to know, we're not too far removed from the dinner guests at that party. In our day, it's sort of like the, the son. You picture this. A son who graduates valedictorian of his high school, goes on to be top of his class in college, finishes and gets his degree, has a lucrative and successful career ahead of him, and then he comes home and tells mom and dad, I think God is calling me into ministry. And I can imagine I've heard enough of those conversations that the thought that bubbles up in the heart, whether you say it or not, is what a waste. And so you can't say that, so you come up with some other clever way to say it, right? Don't you know that you could serve Jesus just as well as an X, Y, or Z, right? These, these other ways of doing it. Don't, don't, the way you'd say it is something like, look, we're all devoted to Jesus, but just be sensible about it. Be practical about it. Be thoughtful about it. Be, don't be so rash. Everyone in the church and the world would agree religion's good. Just don't be fanatical about it. Don't be excessive about it. Everything in moderation, kept in balance, sensible, if you will. A young woman comes and says, I, I want to go overseas to be a missionary to the Middle East, to, to Senegal, to reach the Fulani people. She's doing what? She's giving up her security. She's giving up her safety, her future, her treasure, her all. And so there's a cry in the heart that goes, what a waste. But you can't say that. So you come up with clever things, good things. You, you say things like, listen, you don't have to cross the sea to be a missionary. You just have to cross the street. That's right. It's good. And yet good can be enemy of the best at times. Right? There's all kinds of ways. One, one preacher said it this way. He says, when you're confronted by someone who is totally sold out for Jesus, it's much easier to find a pragmatic, practical excuse for yourself than to face up to the challenge of whether there is lack of love for Christ in your own heart. 
It's much easier for me to belittle that as excessive than to own up to, does my heart love Christ like this? They saw what she did, and they concluded, what a waste. But there was another reaction, polar opposite, and that was of Jesus. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through the end. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Don't miss this. What they call wasteful, Jesus calls beautiful. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. This one preacher named Alistair Begg, he said, you imagine what Jesus was thinking in his mind. We don't know exactly, but you imagine him sitting there at that table. And remember the sandwich in which this story finds itself. There's enemies on every side, darkness all around. Enemies are circling around Jesus. And you wonder if sitting there at Simon's house at that table, if a psalm didn't come up to Jesus' heart. Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You wonder what bubbled up in the heart of Jesus when she did what she did. He is days away from his death. Whatever it was, you can know this, Jesus thought that what she did was a beautiful thing. He defends her. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done for me a beautiful thing. And here's the difference. All they could see, the dinner guests, is the perfume and what it was worth. But all she could see was Jesus and what he was worth. And that difference made all the difference in the world, doesn't it? That's the question. They were there that night, and all they saw was the perfume and what it was worth. And she was there that night, and all she saw was Jesus and what he was worth. And that's the question this passage would pose to us. What is Jesus worth to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? Because I can assure you this. If you found her tombstone, I bet there wouldn't even be a name there. But I can tell you that on that tombstone, it would not read, here lies a pragmatic, practical, moderate, balanced, sensible, frugal, not cheap woman. If you found her tombstone, I imagine that it would simply read, here lies a woman who really, really loved Jesus. She really, really Loved Jesus. She has done for me a beautiful thing, he says. He goes on to say, for you'll always have the poor, and you, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, listen, don't read into this for a second that Jesus wasn't for the poor. In Mark 10, Jesus is the one who told the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. No one has ever identified with the poor more than Jesus has. In fact, Giving to the poor meant giving to Jesus. Jesus became poor, right? The scriptures tell us, 
Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus, has nowhere to lay his head. He became a homeless, itinerant preacher. The, the scriptures say, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich. Nobody knew about the poor, loved the poor, identified with the poor more than Jesus. But here, Jesus is saying, at this particular moment, sitting where we are, when we are, you'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me. He says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Meaning sitting there in Bethany at Simon's house, Jesus' mind is already going ahead to what will happen at the end of the week. At the end of this week, Passover is here. It's the time when one innocent lamb will die in the place of all the sinful people so that God's wrath might pass over. And it's now Jesus' time. Hours away from his own death. And he knows, thinking ahead to what's coming at the end of this week, he will be strung up on a cross and die like a criminal and buried like a criminal. Meaning, what you would do for a loved one in normal circumstances, they won't be able to do for Jesus. A normal funeral would be the loved one comes down and you anoint that body with oil. But he will die as a criminal, be tossed into a grave. He won't have that anointing. And yet he says here, what won't be done then, she does for me now. What won't be done on that Friday, she does beforehand now. And you see it with Judas and the religious leaders circling around this passage like sharks closing in on Jesus as they prepare for his death. She, beforehand, has prepared him for his burial. She has done for him what won't be done then. She has anointed his body with oil. And as a result, Jesus says this. This is the last verse and we'll be done. Verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus anticipates, listen, I will die. I will be buried. But the message about Jesus will not end there. He anticipates he will come up from the grave. So much so, this good news about Jesus will go throughout the whole world. And when it does, what she has done will be spoken of with the good news. And listen to me. Here we are, 2,000 years later, in northeast Philadelphia, talking about her. Just as Jesus said we would. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be spoken in memory of her. Why? Why is this one lady picked out in such a way to say, wherever this gospel goes out, wherever the good news about Jesus goes out, what she's done will be spoken. And I want to simply submit to you, it's because she is a picture of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If Mark had one question for you, could you hear me? Don't miss this. If Mark had one question for you today, it would be simply this. Do you love Jesus? Please note that the question wouldn't be, do you go to church? Please note that the question wouldn't be, have you been baptized or dedicated or done some religious thing? The chief priests and scribes, they did all the religious things. They went to synagogue every week and never missed a week. The question wouldn't even be, do you have some facts about Jesus up here? 
Do you believe that he's God, that he died and rose again? I want you to know the devil believes all that stuff up here. The question would be, do you love Jesus? Does what you see in this story move your heart to say, I feel about Jesus what that woman felt about Jesus? That difference is the difference between a churchgoer and a Christian. Because a churchgoer would come here and know all this stuff. And the question is, do you love Jesus like this woman did? Does bubbling up in your heart a gratitude for Jesus like she did? Do you read this story and go, if I was in the story, I would have probably messed up just like the disciples. But on this side of the story, I want you to know every fiber of my being wants to love him like she did. I may not have done it perfectly, but on this side of the story, if you gave me a flask right now, I'd pour the whole thing on his head. Because my heart loves him like this story. If not, I want you to know you have a rational, sensible, balanced, moderate view of Jesus that anybody could have. But a Christian loves Jesus like this. Loves Jesus like this. If you've got Jesus at an arm's length, if he's a good thing to add onto your weekends, I want you to know you're not a Christian. A Christian loves him like this. Imperfect and all. Flaws, failures and all. But every beat of my heart responds to his love by loving him back this way. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him like this woman loves him? And if you're here going... What on earth could move someone to love Jesus like that? What could make someone really, I mean, not not religious talk, not church speak, what could make someone really love Jesus with their all? Dump 40,000 on his head. What could cause someone to give up their treasures to have him? Then I want you to know, just keep reading Mark. Because when Mark finishes, Mark's point is not to have you stare at the woman, but to stare at the one the woman was staring at, which is Jesus. Because by the end of the story, Jesus will be the priceless one who is broken and poured out. By the end of the story, he's what's in the alabaster flask. He's the one who for us on that cross will be broken and his blood poured out. Listen to me. What is the crucifixion of Jesus? What is the cross if it is not an expressive, expensive, extravagant, unbelievable, out-of-this-world, public display of love and affection for you? What is the cross if it is not an over-the-top, unbelievable, expensive, extensive, expressive, unbelievable gift of love for you? And I want you to know this. God broke his son, and God poured out his blood for you. To redeem you. He gave his all with nothing holding back. He broke his son for you. This is the love of God for you. In spite of your sin. And I want you to know this. If God held counsel with the rest of the world. About doing that for you. The whole world would have said. What a waste. Don't don't do that for her. Don't do that for him. The whole world would have told him. It was a total waste. And yet knowing me. And all that I've done, and all that I am, he broke his son and poured him out for my sake. So then what would I hold back for him? Would I not respond by breaking and pouring out all my heart for him? So, my church-going friend, you're here at church today. 
Mark wants to ask you, do you love Jesus? And listen to me. If you don't, then you can tell Jesus, I don't, but I want to. And if that much would come honestly from your heart, I want you to hear me. Jesus would look at you and say, you have said a beautiful thing. You may not right now, but if you want to, then the simple, honest heart response to this morning would be to say to Jesus, I don't love you like this woman does, but I want to. And he would look at you and say, you've done a beautiful thing. To my Christian brother or sister, my question for you is simply this. Whether you put two coins in a jar or break 40,000 over his head, it matters not. But in your heart, do you love Christ like these two women did? Whether it be in the extravagant or in the everyday, the question for you would be, what beautiful thing will you do for Jesus? I don't need to answer that. The Holy Spirit can work that out in your heart. But it'd be a question you worth answering. It'd be a question worth considering. As you head out of this place and head into this week, I would ask you, Mark would ask you, what beautiful thing, what beautiful things will you do for Jesus in response to the beautiful thing he has done for you? Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks for this time, and we pray now that the Holy Spirit himself would speak to our heart, would prod our heart, would prick our heart in ways that you know we need, would speak to our hearts in ways that you know we need, silence out every voice of a lie of an evil one that would deceive us, that would take this word away and bury it deep in our hearts.